think that when we came here, we came to oppress the Indians and exploit them, and you know that's just not true. That's just not true. Um, the people who came here, the pilgrims, came because they were fleeing religious persecution and were hoping to find a better land and create a new city. So our foundings are very, very complex, but they're not nearly as dark as some people want to make them. So I hope that everybody holds on to the original meaning of Thanksgiving, that it's a time to be grateful for what we've been given by a group of people who put their lives at risk for God to, to try to make a better order. So have a, have a good Thanksgiving, all of you guys, okay? Okay, any prayer requests? Any prayer requests? Connie Thomas, come back here. Where are you? Because I know you, Connie, any prayer requests, there, I don't care. You, we'll wait while you finish, and then when you finish, you can, you can make one of your requests. Eating is not a reason for not being here. Eating is a reason for all of us to get a meal and all of us eat while we're, because I'm going to have some wine shortly. Well, my daughter said for a future husband for her. We've been, I've been praying for that. Say that again. <laughs> Your f- My daughter said yeah. for a future husband for her, a good holy Catholic husband. What? Oh, she's not engaged. She's just looking. She's looking. She's who? What's her name? Amanda. Amanda. Oh, that one. Okay. That one. That one right there. <laughs> Is that Amanda? That's Amanda. Amanda, you have a good name. That's the name of our first child too. Oh, awesome! Yeah, yeah. We, I, I've grown up calling her Ames. She goes by Amy, but in the last few years, she made a very serious point of asking anybody who addresses her to call her by her name, Amanda. Uh-huh. <laughs> any, other, have, any other prayers? Yeah, for prayer, uh, prayers for my nephew, Jack, who uh, went, got taken by ambulance today to the hospital, and they're doing a CAT scan. They don't know if it's his appendix or his... Um, gallstones, they're not sure. So he's in the hospital right now and they just did a CAT scan. So, okay. anyway, for Jack. Okay. My, my nephew, Jack. Is he your nephew? Yes. Okay. My, my sister's son. Oh, Christopher, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's start. Bef- um, here, before I start, I've got to preface this because this is going to be a little bit on. Um, the I was so taken by the reading this Monday in morning mass that I read them as the basis of our prayer last night. I'd like to do it again with you guys, and you'll see why in a moment, because I think the reading speaks so directly to what we've been doing. Um, you know that last time I asked if people could identify miracles in the works that we've read to go back over them, to recall some. I think probably I'm going to send you a list of the works just to remind you and ask you to think about because there's almost not a work that we've read that I can think of that doesn't include a miracle, that doesn't contain a miracle somewhere. Um, critics often don't see them I hope everybody's clear about what happened in Hamlet. 
to what happened as a result of a miracle. One, one of the things that makes it so hard is because I think when most of us think of miracles, we think of sightings or apparitions or appearances or we don't, we don't always see them in the ordinary affairs of our lives. And yet very often that's where they take place. So they have every appearance of just another event when as a matter of fact what takes place is answering some great need that's dealing with a problem and helps to bring an outcome that if we were left to ourselves we couldn't get on our own. So miracles are a strange, strange thing. It's one of the reasons why the modern world disbelieves them because they think matter explains everything and, and so often it's hard to detect miracles. Um, they can say, you're just making things up. Prove it. Well, you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't prove a miracle. You, you either see it and see the evidence of it or, or you don't. It's a, that's why the church is in such a tricky place in dealing with miracles. I mean, it, it, it just can't accept everybody's claims because so often people make claims that have no basis in reality. Um, anyway, I want to read. I want to. I want to start our prayer um, with the readings and um, comment on them, and take our prayer in that direction. Okay. The first reading on Monday was from Maccabees. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our lives from you and for your Spirit with us for all the ways you are at work in our lives. Um, um, your words on Monday, <laughs> like all of them, always, were profound and speak so directly to what that we're doing that I want to take your words and as a basis of our prayer tonight. In Maccabees, um, it begins, from the descendants of Alexander's officers, there sprang a sinful offshoot. Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus, once a hostage at Rome, he became king in the year 137 of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days there appeared in Israel men who were breakers of the law, and they seduced many people, saying, Let us go and make an alliance with the Gentiles all around us. Since we separated from them, many evils have come upon us. Um, the proposal was agreeable. Some from among the people promptly went to the king, and he authorized them to introduce the way of living of the Gentiles. Thereupon they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the Gentile custom. They covered over the mark of their circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They allied themselves with the Gentiles and sold themselves to wrongdoing. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people, each abandoning his particular custom. All the Gentiles conformed to the command of the king, and many children of Israel were in favor of his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. On the fifteenth day of the month, Chislev, in the year 145, the king erected the horrible abomination upon the altar of burnt offerings, and in the surrounding cities of Judah they built pagan altars. They also burned incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. Any scrolls of the law which they found they tore up and burnt. 
Whoever was found with a scroll of the covenant and whoever observed the law was condemned to death by royal decree. But many in Israel were determined and resolved in their hearts not to eat anything unclean. They preferred to die rather than to be defiled with unclean food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Terrible affliction was upon Israel. The word of the Lord. The psalm, the, um, the response was, Give me life, O Lord, and I will do your commands. I, I'm only going to read a couple of the um, passages because they all make clear what the appropriate response should be to the condition that the prophet from Maccabee is expressing. That he's aware that a whole people are beginning to cave. They're accommodating to the political world and giving up their practices. So they've made these adjustments, but compromised their own integrity in doing that. So there's a spirit of sorrow, maybe a spirit of judgment, of condemnation, that my people shouldn't be doing this, but they are. Here are some of the phrases from the psalm. Indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Indignation seizes me. He's angry, upset. Though the snares of the wicked are twined about me, your law I have not forgotten. Redeem me from the oppression of men that I may keep your precepts. I am attacked by malicious persecutors who are far from your law. You can go online to the, there's a site that gives the daily readings. Um, I'll, I'll include it in the letter that I send you tomorrow if you don't have it. But anyway, you can read over it. I, I was very much taken by it and because of the way it picked up the reading from Maccabees. I'm not going to read the whole of the gospel. This is from Luke. And in it, um, Matthew is dealing with the, the man who came to him and was blind and asked Jesus to help him see, to let him see. In another gospel, I think he's called Bartimaeus. Here he's not named, which to me is interesting because he could he could make it anybody. You know. But the man comes to him and persists, calling out to Christ, and the disciples and the people around him keep pushing him back as if he's a nuisance. But he persists. He will not stop. He will not stop. He's not going to let what people think keep him from going to Christ in an act of faith. And finally, Christ says, let him come. And then he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? He replied, Lord, please let me see. Jesus told him, have sight. Your faith has saved you. He immediately received his sight and followed him, giving glory to God. When they saw this, all the people gave praise to God. The gospel of the Lord. Here's the... The reason this was so compelling for me, and, and the reason I thought it would be appropriate to, uh, to, as a start for our prayers is, in the first reading, you've got a whole people accommodating a social world. They've turned away from their practices, their observances, and they've made getting along with people more important than their love of God. And the Maccabees prophet is expressing his indignation, his sorrow, to watch 
those people who share his faith turn. When I read it the first time, I thought this could just as easily have been a description of what's going on in our country today. If you're following, I don't follow this stuff a lot, but you know, in a fringe way, I know from certain things that I've read that floods of people are leaving the Catholic Church. The numbers are startling to me. There are lots of people who go to church who don't believe in the real presence. There are lots of people leaving the Protestant Church. So a great wave is occurring. I mean, people are leaving the Christian faith in hordes. So they're forsaking an old way. And so many modern seculars point to Christians and say, get rid of it. If you would only get rid of your dogmas and be like other churches, we could all get along. Get your dogmas out. <laughs> I, this is what we dealt with actually in uh, St. Francis last night because we're reading Chesterton and he's dealing specifically with that problem. Take away the, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take this up right now, but take away the dogmas of the church, the Trinity, the incarnation, the annunciation, take any major dogma, take it out and get rid of it. What would happen to our faith? How would it change the way we live? Because the secular progressive is saying, get rid of these dogmas and you'll be fine. Get along with us. You're, 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 you're choosing willfully to miss out on this progressive way of life in, in which things are going to continually get better because you, can, you stubbornly hold on to these old beliefs. It doesn't say get rid of the dogmas altogether. He says get rid of the dogma, hold on to the kernel. Yeah, but it's... But I was saying, I'm asking you, think about any of the dogmas, choose them, and get rid of it. What would happen? Any of the dogmas. Um, the second reading is about a, a man coming to Christ who is blind, who asked to see. Here's my question. Can we say of the people who are abandoning their faith that they see? They have eyes, they're not blind. Is there something they're not seeing? Why is the Maccabee prophet grieving over what his people are doing? I mean, obviously, if we put the two gospel or the two readings together, it's it's impossible to come out of them without saying, a whole people has ceased to see. They've made this massive accommodation because in some ways they're blind to something. I mean, whatever, it may be for a whole variety of reasons. So, um, I just would like everybody to hold on to that because that's so much of the force behind what we're doing. When we read Hamlet, I was saying that what Shakespeare's doing in Hamlet is giving us a Reformation play. He's treating a Reformation problem about a private revelation. And Hamlet sets off in this quest and then something happens towards the end of that play that radically affects the way Hamlet sees the spirit that he brings to what he does. He's still going to go in there and fight. He's not less of a fighter. He said the readiness is all. He's going to go into a sword fight. He believes he can win. He's not a coward. He's going in knowing, he knowing that these are his enemies. So, but he isn't the same man. The words that he speaks to Horatio makes clear, you know, um, there's providence in the fall of a sparrow. 
if it's to be now, it won't come. If it is to come, it won't be now. Who knows betimes what will be, let be. The readiness is all. The most important thing is to be ready. So he enters into that moment completely letting go, offering his life, whatever will happen. How many people see that something extraordinary happened in that sequence? And remember, in all of our works, from the Odyssey, Divine Comedy, we'll see it in Winter's Tale and Pericles, the sea, the sea, particularly in Odyssey, the sea is a place of mystery, of grace, of transformation, things changing. It's not our home. It's not where we belong. But it's that place where things happen. And it's in the Channel Crossing that Hamlet has that experience. So, so Lord, <laughs> um, um, thank you for your patience. Um, I ask for a blessing on all of us that our eyes be open. None of us is blind. We all have good sight. But the literature has shown us over and over and over again that we don't see very well. Oedipus, um, Agamemnon, all of them, Hector, Lear, Hamlet, um, Boethius, Lady Philosophy, came to help him see, even though he's going to die. Um, strengthen each of us in our sight, um, take away our blindness, help us to see more deeply, to bring a greater depth of sight to all that we do in our lives. That won't make our lives easier, not for any of us, um, but do that please, um, so that we can be with you, bring you to our world. Um, and I ask a blessing on our country to give all of us a greater courage, um, not just to go along, um, to work for justice. That's our call in the political order, to work for justice. That's from you. That's from our Father. To work for justice, to make justice real, but to bring a spirit of virtue and love because those two virtues are so lacking in our political world today. Let them not be lacking in us, in what we do. Um, I ask a special blessing um, on Amanda. <laughs> Amanda, I hope you're hearing this. And I ask a special blessing for your mother. Because so often, the last thing daughters want to hear is their parents saying, get married. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let a blessing be upon you in you know, your openness, whatever will come to you. And and our, our prayer is that when it does come, you may have different choices. Who knows what you're going to choose. But if it does involve a man in marriage, um, our trust is in you and all that you've received from your mom, for sure, or at least most of it, um, um, that he's a good husband, that he will be a good husband. And maybe even more importantly, that you will, today in our world, you will be a good wife. I think women live in a particularly, particularly difficult world in our time, so um, our blessings on you as well. And um, Jack, I'm sorry, um, Lori, um, look out for Jack. Um, surround him with your protection as he goes in um, to have these procedures done. Let the doctor's minds be clear and their hands sure, and let... Lori's heart be at rest 
as well. We ask prayers, um, Mary, for our son Christopher as well, um, who just been diagnosed with um, COVID. We think he's okay. But um, lots of close friends have come down with COVID and we ask for protection um, of all of them. Um, help them all return to health. Um, Mary, make these prayers please for us. We offer these prayers, Christ in your name, amen. Okay, let me pick up with um, the four quartets. Um, remember that um, the four quartets are based, the analog for them is music. We had read the, the uh, first two sections of Burt Norton. Remember in the first one, Elliot began with those very philosophic statements about time and redemption. We went into the garden. Um, remember, this has been a major theme from the beginning. All of us, every single one of us, long to recover the garden. It's part of our memory. We wouldn't work so hard to get our homes the way we want them if we weren't trying to recover a, a perfection we once had. We long for that world. The, um, one of the testy things about it is very often we can get all the things we want, you know, new home, new car, and still not be satisfied because material things will not answer it. There's something of the spirit, there's something of a return to God that's in heart. But the reason this is, the reason for all of these things is that the garden is present for all of us. So he took us back to the garden, and remember he, he ended that second section with these words, um, and the old made explicit understood in the completion of its partial, ex partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror, that when we go back, we try to escape evils and recover a happiness that we've lost. It'll always escape us in this world. We will never get to it until we return to God. Yet the enchainment of past and future woven in the weakness of the changing body protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. There are these constant little reminders from Eliot. Remember he said in the first section, Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Here, this enchainment protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. Um, the saints get as close to enduring it as anybody. I, I think of St. Paul particularly because of all that he had to endure in his body. And he ends the sec second section with these lines. Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the drafty church at Smokefall be remembered. Involved with past and future, only through time, time is conquered. Section three. Here's a place of disaffection, time before and time after, in a dim light. Neither daylight investing form with lucid stillness, turning shadow into transient beauty with slow rotation, <coughs> suggesting permanence, or darkness to purify the soul, emptying the sensual with deprivation, cleansing affection from the temporal. 
Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy, swollen, with no concentration, men and bits of paper whirled by the cold wind that blows before and after time, wind in and out of unwholesome lungs time before and time after, eructation of unhealthy souls into the faded air, the torpid driven on the wind that sweeps the gloomy hills of London, Hampstead and Clerkenwell, Camden and Putney, Highgate, Primrose and Ludgate, not here, not here the darkness in this twittering world. Descend lower, descend only into the world of perpetual solitude, World not world, but that which is not world. Internal darkness, deprivation, and destitution of all property. Desiccation of the world of sense, evacuation of the world of fancy, inoperancy of the world of spirit. This is the one way, and the other is the same. Not in movement, but abstention from movement. While the world moves in appetency on its meddled ways of time past, and time future. Just a brief word. It's, it's, there's too much going on there to do it any justice here, but I'm just hoping that it will resonate. One of the key concerns in that whole passage and through the opening sections of Bert Norton um, comes from uh, the dark night of the soul, St. John of mm -hmm. the Cross, that it's only by getting rid of things, turning away from them, and entering into that darkness that we find out who we really are. Until that happens, we tend to live in a persona, uh, something we put on, and it's largely a product of the world, you know, the, the way we engage the world. So he, what he's describing here is this movement into the present, because remember, it's the, the terms of this last section, particularly this last section, time before, time after, we tend to live in the past or the future, we tend to live in regrets, memories of what we wished we had done better, or, or we tend to live in the future wanting to do something that we haven't done or to get something we don't have. But living in the present, Eliot's claim, is um, a work of saints because only in the present that, that's most real that we encounter Christ. In the past, we're in a memory. It's important. Memories are important. In the future, we're in a hope. Hope is important. But it's in the present moment that we meet the present of God. Remember, that was central to Boethius. There is no past or future for God. It's an, it's an ongoing present. It's a now. So whenever we are there in that center of the circle, we are closer to God, whatever it is we're doing. Okay. Okay. Let's turn to... Lear. Uh oh. <laughs> you have to hold on for a second. Um, gosh. Before before we turn to King Lear, I've got a question for you all involving that reading. Um. 
one of the things that we're going to experience as we go through Lear is, is that a very painful play. I mean, there are betrayals and intrigues everywhere. You can't read a scene in which a betrayal of some kind doesn't take place, practically. And they involve family, um, so the, it, it's going to be a it's it's going to be a painful play to read in some sense. Um, thanks, thanks. Um, do the readings that I read as the basis of our prayer tonight for any of you? Do they speak at all? to your awareness of what's going on in our world. And um, if you put the two Gospels together and, and, and um, hold on to the fact that what's at the heart of the Gospel is this guy who's blind comes to Christ and says, give me my sight. Um, what does that do for the way we look at our world? And one of the reasons I'm asking this now is because I, I, the, one of the questions I asked at Hamlet, I want to ask here. I asked when we did Hamlet, is there a God in this world? How do we know? And lots of people, as I think, I think I've suggested, do not see a God in that world. Lear's a more violent world. Is there a God in this world or not? But that's a question we have to answer, like the Hamlet play, at the end. But right now, I'm just curious. You know, when you when you think about the readings that I just read from Maccabee, and um, I think it was from Luke um, about the blind man. Do you was it Matthew? Do you do you do you apply them? Do you see those things as applying to our world and to ourselves? I don't want to get off. I, I'm asking this because I think it relates to Lear a lot, but. Um, I'm just curious how you guys heard the readings. The modern world says we're progressive, we're educated. The basis of religion, this is Marx, and a lot of people have been educated on Marx today. The basis of religion is fear and superstition. People only turn to it out of fear and because they're superstitious. They're not reasonable, they're not rational enough. Get rid of religion and the world will be at peace. And Christ himself says everywhere, I came to bring a sword, I came to bring a, to create a conflagration, a great fire. So how do you, I don't want to take too much time, but how do you, do you see those readings applying or not? They apply for all times, because there's always a struggle between honoring the, you know, the foundation of civilization, which is your religion, and then wandering away from it, especially when it yields prosperity. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it definitely applies to the day. Now, I went to Mass Monday evening, and, and I remember, of course, remember the readings, but when you read them, it it was more clear for some reason. I don't know why, but it's exactly what we're experiencing today, especially in the political world. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's more about worldly stuff, and, and they, you know, everybody... Uh, not, not everybody, but a lot of people, most of them are forgetting about, you know, God's laws and, you know, we must uphold them first um, instead of going with what the world thinks is correct. Yeah. One of the things that was so compelling about those two readings is I don't think you can come out of the first reading without being aware that a world is caving in. We've seen that, in, you know, in a number of things, but... 
But when you set the gospel reading next to that, it, to me it's just hard because in the first reading we're made aware of a whole people. One of them is somehow standing out, aware that you know his fellow believers are accommodating where they shouldn't. But in the second, it's only about one guy who's blind. But if you put the two together, it just seems to me we can't look at those reading without asking if if all of us aren't blind in some way. Um, in which case, those readings become. And I, I think I think most of you know that we're we're finishing the liturgical year, the calendar year, and most of the readings for the last month have been strong warnings. Christ has been pretty tough in his warnings. You know, two will be in bed, two in the field, one will be taken over and over again. He's, he's um, making warnings everywhere. So, Any other comments on the reading? Well, you know, Bob, I, I think that uh, th these readings from Maccabees this week have always struck me. They're, they're the most graphic depictions of martyrdom in all the Bible, I think. Uh, all I've, I've, and like especially the one from today as well about the old man who was scourged to death rather than to uh, to defy the dietary restrictions of Judaism. Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, and I'm, so I, I, when I contemplate that, I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm humbled you know, with how, how easy I have it in my faith, you know, that, uh, and uh, these were people, and still are, you know, people were martyred in the Holy Land routinely these days, and they are people who have, they have a grasp of something that is so precious to them that they won't give it, give up, give it up, yeah. for, for, even for loss of life and a very painful death. Yep. Yep. No, thanks for that. I mean, that was so good and right on. At the center of is, is Christ on a cross. So, you know. Um, anybody else, quickly? Anne. Oh, sorry, who? Anne. I, Anne. Go ahead, Anne. Yeah. In total contrast, yesterday a very progressive friend of mine, and this was not original, but she liked it well enough to post it on Facebook, was an article about why we needed to drop In God We Trust as our national motto. It, it hurt me deeply and to see that our society is going that way. Yeah, has been for a long while, yeah, and exactly those terms. I mean, you could ask the question, you know, that I asked last night in St. Francis, take away the dogmas of the church, take any, take, name five important dogmas, take any one of them away, what will happen? If you take that statement, you know, the one that you're referring to, take that away and begin, make your list, go down the list, take four or five, what will I mean? I'm asking this really. What will happen to our country? How will we be changed? What will we become? Um, if we lose touch with our foundations and what we set out to do as a nation under God, what will we? What will we become? It goes so directly to that reading from Maccabees. God, it's just um, anyway. 
Okay, here's, here's the major question for Lear, and it's the, I'm just repeating the one for Hamlet. Is there a God in this world? Is there goodness working? Because lots of people are going to say, this is one of the most painful plays ever created. And it's just evidence that Shakespeare was modern and nihilist. He didn't believe in God. That There's this meaningless universe um, in which people kill each other. A couple of themes, a couple of concerns to keep in mind as we go through this. One, remember last week I asked everybody to think about miracles in the works that we've read. We talked a good bit about it in Hamlet, but I, I think I'm going to send you a list and give you a... I'm going to give you guys a take-home quiz. You're going to have to answer that. Um, Lear, the actual king, lived nine centuries before Christ, just slightly, I think, before the time of Isaiah. And I've asked this question before. Why did Shakespeare set his play then? Two, a couple of things to keep in mind when you think about Lear and any of his plays, particularly in England. It's not so in the, in the uh, Italian plays because in the Italian plays he's not dealing with monarchies, he's dealing with democracies. Shakespeare knew the difference between these regimes. In Lear he's dealing with a king and one of the advantages of dealing with a king is he can, he can show us the heights and depths to which characters are drawn through power. But because it's a king, we can see the full extent of what happens when somebody has that kind of power. So if there's some sin, some evil in what he's doing, we're going to see the ramifications of it more clearly. Because there's more power involved in what he does. Okay. I believe that one of the advantages of, of reading a play like this is this. Because the consequences of actions are so clear... When people of power act and they're not as aware of the consequences as they should be, the consequences that do take place affect a whole people. So by reading this, we can see that in lots of ways, our own sins have consequences, even if we don't see them. I mean, it goes back to this question of blindness again, you know, that we're, we're just blind, like the guy wanting sight from Christ. So the fact that it deals with a monarchy shouldn't keep us from seeing that it speaks to us. Some of the other, some of the other reasons for setting it back there, I just wanted, these are in my notes in the, in the uh, um, study guide that I put on our site. Um, to tell a story in which every vestige of ecclesiastical trappings was removed made it possible for Shakespeare to go beneath appearances or surfaces and deal with fundamental questions of nature, spiritual sight, unconditional love, and when the play could be looked at as various forms of crosses. When you're in an ecclesial world, so often those things get covered up because we're going through observances. By taking us out into that world, into the world as we know it outside the church, he can show us more truly what's underneath the surface, what's underneath appearances. By going back to a pre-Christian world, that is a world presented in purely naturalistic terms, Shakespeare could get an increasing number of skeptical non-believers among the humanists to see things they didn't want to see to see the profound effects of living a life that lacks a faith. Really important. I mean, 
Take my question earlier. Take away any of the dogmas, what will we have? One of the best ways of learning is to take away those things that we take for granted. What happens in their absence? Take away our faith, what will happen? What do we see about our human nature? By going back the way he did to a pre-Christian time, Shakespeare can show us exactly what happens when that faith is removed. Yeah? If you live according to naturalistic beliefs, which, what is, which is what moderns increasingly do, this is what we've got. This is the world we've got. Good and evil in the play are set off starkly from one another. Shakespeare may have wished to show the active workings of grace in a pre-Christian or fallen world. He knew that increasing numbers of individuals who had converted to Protestantism believed that nature was depraved, that no redemption was possible until after Christ, and that conversions were purely imputed, that is external. That's the basis of the Protestant notion of conversion. It's imputed. You put it on. One of the fundamental differences between the Catholic and the Protestant is the Catholic believes that the sacraments are necessary because they affect a change inwardly. We can't go to Christ without becoming more like him. That's why Dante had purgatory. A Protestant believes that faith is imputed. It's put on. So no matter what you do, by the way, there are, it, you can Google this. It's really interesting, some of the sites on this. Protestants believe that you can continue doing what you're doing with no effect. You're saved, you believed it, and you're okay. The Catholic says, no, you, we, we, we undergo constant conversions by giving ourselves to what Christ asks. Um, the Protestant believed nature was depraved, that no redemption was possible until after Christ, and that covenants were simply, conversions, sorry, were purely imputed, that is external. Yet all that happens to Lear, Cordelia, and even Edmund is impossible to appreciate or understand in any other way except in terms of inner conversions that are redemptive. That's my great claim for the play, that a redeeming, a redemptive action is taking place in Lear. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm answering the question that I didn't, but I think that's basically what's going. Such a turn might have been horrifying to Protestants holding the beliefs they did, and even draw them back to more traditional beliefs that allowed for conversions. We know from Cantos 19 and 20 in Dante's Paradiso that God's grace is not confined by man's categories of time and, time and space or justice. Trajan and Rufius, remember we went over that, were two pagans who were in heaven. Their presence in the eagle eye, remember when we went over that, their presence shocked Dante. And the, the eagle gave him an answer why that was so. Um, so it asks of us a different way of seeing. And I'm going to go back to my original concern in the prayer. How many of us are blind and don't see it? Um, do we see the way God sees? Do we let our beliefs get in the way? Our church gives us a different way of seeing. Um, so those are some of the, I think, some of the concerns. I'm speculating. We don't know this. I'm, I'm looking at the play. And so don't, don't take any of this with any degree of certainty. These are questions I have about why Shakespeare would have gone back.
act the way he did. And I think they'll be more compelling with our next two plays because when we read Pericles and uh, Winter's Tale, we're in a world that's more explicitly sacramental, that's more noticeably, visibly Christian. Um, okay. Um, what I'd like to do now is simply um, go through the play um, reading and stopping um, periodically to to take your comments and questions and I'll, I'll ask some questions as you know, as I generally do to, to see if we can't open up some of these pas- um, passages. But let me stop here before we start. Any Any questions about any of the background thoughts that I just offered. <clears throat> Do you? Something's wrong. Okay, um... Once again, the major themes, some of the major themes of the play. Um, The most central in the opening is the passing on of a life. That Lear reaches a point in old age where he has to pass it on. Every one of us is going to have to face that in our wills. So he's speaking directly to all of us right now in our time of our life. What do we do? And one of the things we see immediately is that in what he does, he makes clear there are so many things that he did not see about himself. Because his actions uncover lots of things about himself that he just didn't see as a king. So this moment of transition, this this passing on of a life, becomes an occasion for... um, uh, meeting ourselves, finding out who we are. Okay. Um, the wheel of fortune, repeatedly in the play. If if you you should have already encountered it. If you you know you're well on your reading, but if you haven't, just be aware you'll you'll come across this image of the wheel of fortune. Um, it's from Boethius because remember the wheel goes up and down. Fortune always changes. We can't. Um, I'll get rid of this thing there. Um, and we can't always predict what's going to happen. To, we're asked to be prudent in what we do to take care of what we've got. Um, the theme of justice. It is a major theme of the entire play. And it is for everyone of you know from Merchant of Venice, Othello, Anthony and Cleopatra, all's well, all of them. Is justice merely a convention, a man-made thing, or is it inherent in the nature of things? You know from Boethius that Boethius believes that there's an inherent order to the world. It's inherent in the nature of things. I think one of the reasons this is such a concern for Shakespeare is because with science that notion is done away with. We tend to look at the world in terms of mathematical abstractions. So do we don't see an order that reflects a God. As a matter of fact, the modern world tends to look at the world and say, you, um, you, 
You don't know the beginning of things. You don't know the ends. We don't know where we're going. Man's just a product of forces. He doesn't understand them. <clears throat> so the modern world has lost an understanding of justice. And it's interesting to watch the way that plays out in the soft sciences in therapy. Because in a traditional world, we are held responsible for our actions. Consequences mean something because our free will matters. If Think about it. This is one of Boethius' argument. We, may, we went over this in the consolation. If man has no free will, if he's just a product of forces, it makes no sense to punish him or reward him. Why punish him for something he couldn't otherwise do? Or do otherwise? Or couldn't do? So in therapy, the, one of the assumptions of the modern therapist is that they want to do away with the notion of retributive justice, that there are consequences to our actions, on the belief that if you, if you go through a process of therapy, you'll help this person realize what his problems are and change. There's contradictions in that. I don't want to go into that right now. But Is there a justice to the world, to, to nature? Nature. Okay, it's one of the major themes. And it's, it's interesting that he's dealing with it in so many plays because he's on the verge of a scientific revolution that's going to do everything to undermine that notion. Is that clear? I want to be clear before I go on. Was that Chuck who made a comment? Hmm? I don't think I think it was an echo. Did anybody make a comment? Did I? I sometimes I, I get an echo. Or David or Kay or anybody. Um. Another another major theme, and it maybe it's one of the most central ones, because it's connected to all the others. It's the whole theme of obedience to lords and masters. If there is no nature. There's no meaning to nature, and man can do whatever he wants. There's no reason to be obedient. You can do what you want. But if there is a nature to the world, to nature, if there's a justice, an order to nature, then it means obedience is a serious thing. And obedience is very much at the center of this play. You know that Kent will offer himself in service after Lear banishes him. If any man ever had a right to be angry at a lord and move away from him, it's Kent. Same with Cordelia. She was banished, and yet she's going to come back to help her father. So in Cordelia, particularly Cordelia and Kent, we have images of children who continue to honor their parents even after their parents have done something bad. Goneril and Reagan and Edmund do not. There's no obedience in any of them. As a matter of fact, the, the two most embarrassing acts that we're going to deal with tonight are those acts in which the children are going to repeatedly insult their father. They're going to do nothing but find fault in him, and they're going to use his faults as an excuse to do what they do. How many kids do that with parents today? How many parents have set that up by what they've done with their kids? I think I'm getting close to the bone here, I'm assuming, because I, I mean, I know as a parent, and I'm, yeah, no. Um, 
those are some of the major themes, and I think ultimately the the one at the heart of it. And I I just I'm going to make this as a statement, but I'd like to present it to you in the form of a question. The most important thing in this whole play is love. Lear degrades it by wanting to trade on it at the beginning. How much love do you have? I'll pay you a certain amount according to how much. You know, that's how it starts. So the play starts off on that note that love is something you can trade on. You can turn it into a commodity. You can purchase love. Um, is love possible? I mean, it goes to Anne's grief about that you know statement that progressive person got the progressive mind yeah, I, I, we've got to do Chesterton's orthodoxy together um, I, I think I'm going to do it after Shakespeare and not wait um, is love possible in a world in which there's no justice or no order if there's no meaning to things and the world came out of nowhere and going nowhere what does that do for our understanding of love set that against a God who so loved his creations, his, his, the children he created, that he sent his only begotten son to a cross for them. Is love possible in a world that does not believe in justice, in which there's no order? Now let me stop there. Those are some of the major themes I'd like to turn to the bit, but let me take a minute. Any that may be a lot, I'm not sure, but those are it's a way of focusing what I think are some of the major themes there. And I hope everybody sees they go once again directly to our faith. And our reason, our powers of reason, and how we can draw on those powers of reason to deal with our world. Yeah? Let me stop. Any any questions about were those clear? Did I did I set them out clearly enough? Connie. No, ask a question. I, I need some help right now. Somebody's got to have a question here. And I know I can't believe you don't have a question. Not at this point. I feel like I will when we delved into this first. Okay. <laughs> Chuck? Well, no questions, but I think you set the stage pretty nicely, and we're ready to dive into it now and see how these these things play out. You know, it makes um, makes these characters much more interesting. Good. Edmund, to me, with Gloucester here, yeah. he's going to go to Dover. Yep. Uh, Edgar, Edgar, I mean, not Edmund, of course, and Edgar playing playing Tom. Well, I'm going to go back to Edmund. I just I thought, but let me, and I'm going to give something away. And I'm going to try. I'm going to not give it away. Edmund is the most evil person in this play. He's the closest figure to somebody like Iago as Shakespeare created. He's an evil, evil figure. Something's going to happen at the end, I'm not going to say what, that's absolutely radical in this whole, in all the things that I've been raising about justice and love and is love possible. And But we have to wait till we get to the end, Act 5. Okay, let's go. Um, can you all turn to Act 1, Scene 1? Lear has just banished Cordelia and Kent, and um, he turns to the two lords who have been wooing Cordelia, Burgundy, and France, and in a what is a shameful display of a lack of integrity, 
Burgundy turns away when he learns that he'll receive no dowry. So once again, and this is so, Shakespeare's so profound. So whatever the treaties were, whatever alliance existed between England and Burgundy or England and France are strained right now. Whatever Lear hoped to achieve in the way of a strengthened, stronger alliance with Burgundy has collapsed because Burgundy refused Cordelia. And Lear has no hard feelings about it because he himself right now hates his daughter. He thinks he's, she's humiliated him. He turns to um, France. This is about Act 1, Scene 1, Line 209, somewhere in there. Lear, then leave her, sir, for by, for by the power that made me, I tell you all her wealth. For you, great king, I would not from your love make such a stray to match you where I hate. Therefore, I beseech you to avert your liking to a more worthier way than on a wench whom nature is ashamed, almost unacknowledged hers. He, he is he's so ashamed by what Cordelia did that he praises Burgundy for having the good sense to turn away from something so bad. And by the way, maybe this is a good time to bring this in. One of the one of the things that struck me in the readings for the last month, I, is, we're going to um, after we finish Chesterton in in uh, at St. Francis, we're going to do the Gospels. We're ending six years of our work together, and we're going to do Matthew and uh, Matthew and John in the Book of Revelations. So I've been reading through scriptures um, and really enjoying them again. It's been a long time. I, I can't count the number of scenes in which Christ performs a miracle when the um, scribes and Pharisees are present and all they can see is bad. He will be doing an extraordinary thing and they make it something bad. That somebody could do that to, to watch a person that gives such a sense of envy and a blinding pride that they will not see a good taking place before their eyes because of some belief they hold. Talk about blindness. I, I hope everybody's seen that. Cordelia did something really hard. Um, she would not lie. Lots of people fault her for being too honest. I, I'm some. There may be some support for that, some ground for that. But it's, it's, it seems to me certainly one of the things we have to say is that she tried to be virtuous and the king saw nothing but bad. For him to speak of her this way, sure her offense must be of such unnatural degree that that monster, or this, wait, when Lear says, therefore beseech you to avert your liking a more worthy way than on a wench whom nature is ashamed almost to acknowledge hers, that what Cordelia did was so against nature that he, that he sees her as a wench. And he's turned her into a whore. Um... France, that she whom even but now was your best object, the argument of your praise, balm of your age, the best the dearest, should in this trice of time commit a thing of so monstrous to dismantle so many folds of favor. Sure, her offense must be of such a natural degree that monsters or your forevouched affection fallen into taint. He's saying that there may have been something wrong with you for you to suddenly have changed so much. I mean, that's a pretty brave thing to say which to believe of her must be a faith that reason without miracle should never print pl um, plant in me. 
he's he's not going to believe it unless some astounding things takes place because all of his rational powers this has nothing to do with faith all of his rational powers say she's good Cordelia um, beseeches her father to be kinder um, um, I don't want to read the speech but she says she didn't dishonor him that hath deprived me of your grace and favor what did she do for even for want of that for which I am richer a still soliciting eye and such a tongue that I am glad I have not though not to have it hath lost me in your liking she can't speak but what is deeply true um, Lear better thou hadst not been born than not to have pleased me better Take this an act of murder once her life away. France, is it but this, a tardiness in nature which often leaves us history and spoke that it intends to do? My Lord of Burgundy, what say you to the lady? Love is not love when it's mingled with regard that stands aloof from the entry point. Will you have her? She is herself a dowry. You don't need money. She herself is this great gift. Burgundy, royal king, he, he withdraws. Lear, nothing I have sworn, I'm firm. Um, Burgundy, so because Lear won't back it up with uh, dowry, Burgundy, he gave him one last chance and Lear wouldn't do it, so he backs off. France, fairest Cordelia, that art most rich, being poor, most choice forsaken, and most loved despised. Thee and thy virtues here I seize upon. Be it lawful, I take up what's cast away. Good God, gods, gods. Tis strange that from their coldest neglect my love should kindle to inflame respect. Thou dowerless daughter, king thrown into my chance, is queen of us, of ours, and of our fair France. This speaks so well of France, you know, that he brings that kind of spirit to what's in front of him. Um, Lear will exit and the two sisters will be left to themselves. I'll just read a few of the lines at the end of Act 1. Reagan says, "'Tis the infirmity of his age, yet he hath ever slenderly known himself. The best and soundest of his time hath been but rash. Then must we look for his age to receive not alone the imperfections of long engrafted condition, but therewith of the unruly waywardness that infirm and choleric years bring with them." They have nothing but bad things to say, and they've already cast the future in stone. That Lear's only showing how rash he was in old age, he's going to do it now. Um, we have nothing to look forward to but bad things. Um, Goneril finishes, pray you let us hit together if our father carry authority with such disposition as he bears this last surrender of his will but offend us. We shall further think of it. We must do something and in, um, and in the heat. So now while they can so both of them have aligned themselves with each other to do what they can to um, put their father down, um, to get him out of the way. Act 1, scene 2. Well, wait, let me stop. Anybody want to comment on the daughters? How would you characterize the two daughters? In their own minds, do they see themselves as doing something evil? They just see themselves as doing what's expected. 
Sure, they're probably not, sure. they're probably not a person that's evil, but that, that's the problem. Say, flesh that out some. I'm sorry. Those... They, they say, well, they're doing what's expected, and you would you assume they don't see themselves as doing evil, because how did they get to be in such a state that they would consider that to be expected and be okay with doing it? Yeah. Which it raises an interesting question why Cordelia is so different from them. That's never explored. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? Do they see what they're doing as evil, bad? That's a problem of evil in general, isn't it? It's like, you know, it's banality of evil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so true. Um, well, wait, hold on. I mean, boy, does that raise an interesting question. One of the concerns that the church has in our time is that people have lost their conscience. Mm -hmm. It's so important to keep a vigilant, active. I mean, the church says stay vigilant. Memento mori, stay vigilant, stay awake, pray, fast. The church does everything it can to keep everybody, everybody's conscience alive and vital. Because if you lose your conscience, it's easy for you to do things without seeing how bad they might be. Yeah, right. that's, a, that's a problem of modernity. You know, that's what we always try to tell our kids, that um, bad things happen really casually and very easily. It takes effort to be good. Well, one of the characteristics in my own mind of the modern world is its innocence. It does things as if you know, it's in innocence when it's just not. Yeah. Um, we have so lost a conscience in our age. Here, let me go on. Act 1, Scene 2, nature appeals, or Edmund appeals to nature at his goddess. And I want to take a minute with this because I think it's important. Thou nature art my goddess, to thy law my servants are bound, my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me, for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines leg of a brother? Why bastard, wherefore base? When my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous, and my shape as true as an oddest madam's issue. So he goes on like this and then says, Well then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. Our father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate. Fine words, legitimate. Well, my legitimate, if this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund the base shall top the legitimate. I grow, I prosper, now God stand up for bastard. Now hold on. Um, Edgar, Edgar stands to inherit all of Gloucester's estate. Edmund stands to gain nothing because he's illegitimate. And at this point, we know what's going to happen in the next minute. He's going to meet with his father and show him a letter that supposedly was written by Edgar planning to kill his father. Edmund is saying, Gloucester, Edgar is planning to kill you to get your inheritance now. Edmund contrives that in order to set the father against his son so that he can manipulate things in order to get the inheritance himself. That's why he says he's going to get the land. I grow and prosper. His father will come in. Um, um, Ed, Edmund will tell him what Edgar supposedly said, and, and I want to look at that in a moment. But let me just stop with this first speech, if I can, here. Thou nature art my goddess. To thy law my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the, permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me for that I'm some twelve or fourteen moon, moonshines lag of a brother? Why, bastard, wherefore base? 
when my dimensions are as well compact, my mind is generous and my shape is true. What's his attitude? What's his understanding of nature? Is there an order to nature or not? Um, how does Edmund look at nature and his own condition as an illegitimate son? I think he sees nature as um, he's seeing it as an excuse for him to follow his emotions where his emotion is driving him, where his base desires are. Um, and this has happened throughout history in all of the romantic movements. You see this focus as soon as the focus in literature shifts to, and just in culture in general, culture, the arts, everything, as soon as the focus shifts to emotion, there is this there's this concentration on nature as well to sort of justify that that's their compass, possibly. And he refers to it again later on. He he gives this great speech about the stars and the, you know. It, so so it's almost like he's saying I can't control this, but there is no in his sense of nature there is no order it is just whatever he has made it right right he he's giving nature primacy over convention they really explore convention here and why it might be the convention the bastards are not given the same privileges as legitimate son that's a whole other question right. but um, he, he clearly says that hey he's deferring to nature nature says that i am just as lusty and capable and therefore i have to have my due yeah 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 uh, and I, I, right now, I don't even want to touch on this question of how modern that is. Let me just leave it because it, it goes so much to so much with uh, what was said earlier. But just to underscore these words, wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom? That is established laws or ways of doing things. Because hold on for a second, if something's established, the customs that go on, presumably it's because. There's some understanding of a affinity, a relationship between those laws and nature. And Edmund is denying them, saying they're not there. Why should he be not denied a place? Because, and it's watch the way his mind rationalizes. For that I am some 12 or 14 moonshines leg of a brother? You know, um, be, because he didn't come from a legitimate sexual act? I mean, he's, the, the, I, the use of the 12-month lag, 14-month moonshine is a wonderful justification because I happen to be born 12 months shy because my father happened to be taken up with another woman then. I should be punished by that. Um, so he's, he, implicitly he's saying there is no connection between laws and nature. It goes to Heather's point. That nature is random and meaningless. He can make of it whatever he wants. Okay, so for him, there is no order to nature, none. So if there's any inherent relationship between laws and nature, and that's one of the concerns the play is exploring, um, if there's, that relationship doesn't exist for Edmund. He can make of it what he will. Now here's the question, I mean, it, it's sort of going to where Heather was going. What happens when there's no law or order to nature and you make your own will the arbiter of everything? What happens to your actions? 
becomes a contest of, of wills. It's power. Yeah. Power. Yeah. And by the way, Heather, I, sorry, if, I, if, if you won't mind, I... <laughs> I, at least myself, would be a little bit more at ease with the word um, passion and not emotions. Because in my mind, the two connote a different thing. All of us have emotions. All of us have passions. We all do. And passions are emotions. But passions suggest a, um, a lack of measure, that it's exceeding something natural when it becomes a passion. Um, when Edmund's talking with his father, this is Act 1, Scene 2, around line 100, he says, These late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent effects. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide, in cities mutinies, in countries discord, in palaces treason, the bond cracked twixt son and father, this villain of mine comes under that prediction. There's son against father. The king falls from biases of nature. There's father against child. We have seen the best of our time. He goes on. Um, that's Gloucester speaking um, to, to Edmund. Uh, uh, what does that say about his understanding of nature? Wait, let me finish. And Edmund goes, this is the excellent foppery of the world. That when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeits of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, the stars, as if we are villains on necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion. His father's just left after those words and Edmund's commenting on what his father just said. What's the difference between the two of them in the way that they look at nature? Gloucester's saying all things are caused by nature. Implicitly, he's denying free will. All these things happen according to shifts in seasons and moods, and when they do, they have these effects on couples, regimes, whatever people do. Edmund's response is, this is excellent foppery. This is the stuff of fools. That when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeits of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, the stars, as if we were villains on necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, treacherous by spherical predominance. He's saying there's a tendency in us um, to project our worst faults onto nature as a way of excusing them. They're caused by nature, so we're not responsible. But, he says, I should have been that I am had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing. He would have been what he was anyway, is what he's saying. Anybody want to comment on Edmund and what we're learning about him as a man? He's very modern in so many ways. I should have been that I am, had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinked, twinkled on my bastardizing. It's at this point that Edward comes and, and he will carry on his plot with him. Anybody? There's something about him dwelling in the past and always going back to his uh, to his own creation. 
but but in an unhealthy way he keeps so you know like you said you can only encounter christ in the present but edmund's focus is on his past and he still carries that um he still carries that anger toward that anybody else doctor what do you have to say about him about edmund these words it reminds me of Iago. Iago, yeah. yeah. He's just setting everybody up and using them for his purposes. Yeah, one of the it's really interesting. I just think this is a powerful figure, and it it it, it makes what happens at the end even more significant. But um, if you take away custom and law as a guide and man's left to himself in his own will, he can go wherever he wants, he can use his mind to justify whatever he does. I think he, 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 he's got the past on his mind, but as a way to justify it, but I also think he got his mind on the future because he, he, he's constantly working to bring about something he wants. But the most important point about all of it is that um, Nothing binds him. Nature to him is, a, is an open tabula rasa. He can write on it, do with it, whatever he wants. Um, he's an image of a man, what can happen to a man when man isolates himself, removes himself from customs and conventions. The, the things that are created to help guide us um, because of our weaknesses, take those away and... and um, when we're left to ourselves, it's um, there. There are just too many wrong things in us that can go wrong without help. Um, it's at this point that Goneril, um, um, Edmund, continues with his plan with his brother and father. <clears throat> he says at the end of Act One, Scene Two, "I see the business let me, if not by birth." Have lands by wit. You could substitute cunning. Have lands by wit or cunning. All with me's meat that I can fashion it. Can I can fashion fit? He can make of the world whatever he wants by his own cunning. Now think about how important that would have been for Shakespeare and, and even think about how important it is for a day. That people intriguing in court, because intrigues in court were going on constantly. The success of a person depended on how cunning he was, how much he could manipulate or use other people to get what he wanted. Um, and that was especially true of the throne. Think about the contending families using whatever the reasons they wanted to justify the claim on the throne. The, the wars they fought, the things that they did. Henry sent, took to bed six women. I think he put two in the four in the tower, two in the tower, and executed two, with all sorts of justifications. In Acts 1, Scene 3, um, we are at um, Albany's palace, and um, Goneril and Oswald meet, and she tells um, Oswald to 
um, to do what he can to disrespect the knights because she's upset at their behavior. And there's Lear's got a hundred knights with him, and and she's finding problems everywhere. Um, and she just says, um, "Turn a cold shoulder to Lear and the knights and whatever they do." Act one, scene four. Kent arrives, and we hear him giving thought to wanting to serve Lear. So even though all these other, and it's really interesting, even if you look at the action up to this point, everything's turning against Lear and fathers. The daughters are, Edmund's turning against his father. Here's somebody who's not a child who's being faithful in his obedience, even though Lear banished him. He's committing himself to being a servant so he puts on a mask and Lear arrives and sees him and Lear asks him who he is and he says he's an honest man and Lear asks him what would you do and Kent replies, this is about line 20 or so, service, who wouldst thou serve? You, dost thou knowest me, fellow? No, sir, but you have that in your countenance which I would fain call master. What's that? Authority. What services canst thou do? Two things come into play right now and they're inseparable. Kent has committed himself to serving Lear um, because of his authority. He's a king. The fact that he king, he's a king means nothing right now to his daughters. And the fact that Gloucester's a lord means nothing to Edmund. So this focuses this theme that I mentioned at the beginning of obedience. Obedience cannot rest. By the way, this is the church. These are the church fathers. All the early church fathers said we, um, it, it, it was incumbent, it was imperative that we give obedience to our world leaders. I think I've gone over this before. Because they knew that if you didn't, chaos would be the result. Obedience could not rest on the ruler being virtuous. Because if that were true, none of us would have obedience because none of us are the deserving of that kind of... Um, I think I mentioned this last week. What's the only exception to that rule? You obey your parents, you obey the political rulers. There's only one exception. It's an important one. When do you not obey your political leaders? We've already, I think, touched on it in one sense. What's yeah, Chuck said, said it last week, when, when it goes against God's law. Right. If you're if you're if you're acting on behalf of God's law, then you're compelled to resist, even at cost of your life. So here's this touchy balance or relationship that we've been talking about, you know, often. Um, um, is there is there a justice to nature? Is there an order to nature? Sorry, is there an order to nature? Um, is there um, a, a justice implied in nature? Edmund says no. Kent and Cordelia are acting as if there were. Because Kent right now is offering his service to Lear by nature, because it's something good. He wants to serve because he's his master, and he has the authority, even if at times he misuses it. And we know that, we know that a lot of this is going to clear up some because the fool is about to make his appearance and he's going to have very little very little good to say about Lear so there is a, a voice present 
that's offering Lear, a, you know, a correction to what he's doing. Um, so, um, Lear and Kent agree, or, or you know, to, um, to work together, and Oswald comes on, and Lear calls to him, and Oswald says, so please you, and leaves. This is about line 45, and Lear says, what says the fellow there? Call the cl um, clot pole back. Where's my fool hole? I think the world's asleep. How now? Where's that mongrel? The knight comes in and says that, that he believes what's happening behind the stage is that people are more and more disrespecting him, and what happened with Oswald is proof. Oswald comes back again, and Lear says, Oh, you, sir, you, come you hither. Who am I, sir? My lady's father. What's wrong with that? He's a servant of Goneril's. Who am I, sir, my lady's father? He's stripping Lear of his, of his title. Uh, yep. What should he have said, Mike? Oh, you are the king. You are the king of my lady. The guy at Lear said, "Who am I?" He made his. He made what? Is, and by the way, what? Oh, two questions here. So he doesn't say, "You're the king of my lady." He says, "My lady's father." What does that imply about him? He should have said, you're the king of my lady. What does that say about Oswald? Well, he's saying you're nothing to me. But what does that say about the, his actions, his motives for everything he would do? Let's say with, with Goneril. Okay. Anybody? It says his allegiance is to Goneril over the king. Yeah, and what, what does that say about him? What will he do and what will he won't do? He's a lackey. So, yeah. Everything he does is for himself. Yeah. Um, that is, once again, he has no respect for authority or some inherent order in nature. We're seeing at another level an, an example of a kind of disobedience and its effects playing out. Lear's been stripped. He, that, I mean, the fool's going to make this clear. He gave away his authority to his daughters. So his daughters have it. So whatever inherent authority he had, he gave up. And Oswald's playing to that right now. So he's not acknowledging there was a natural authority in Lear. It's like it was a convention. It wasn't real. So he's playing to Goneril. It's one of the problems. I mean, Lear, Lear, Shakespeare is dealing with this everywhere, that if you take away authority and the ground of authority and you undermine obedience, then people will go on doing whatever it is they want to do, and all they're going, what they're going to be doing is contributing to problems, and, and here it goes again, and be blind to them. They just won't see. Does Oswald see a problem with himself? No. Um... One, one thing here before we go on, it's at this point that the, that the fool appears and Lear is asked, where's his fool? And the knight says, since my young lady's going into France, sir, the fool has much pined away. When Cordelia went to France, 
the fool disappeared and now he's returned. Anybody see anything there in that connection that he disappeared when she did and he's coming back now when he's in trouble? Very often Shakespeare uses stage entrances and stage exits and characters being juxtaposed or put together, being separated as a way of speaking. You see any connections there between Cordelia being banished in the pool, disappearing? I don't know. It's, it always struck me uh, as if the fool were acting as Lear's conscience. In a, in a way, not, not all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's pretty brutal, but yeah. And, and isn't there an affinity between the fool and Cordelia? That there is a fool in her in speaking. I mean, in political terms, that she speaks those things that her sisters wouldn't, or that others wouldn't. But she did it in her own person, so put herself at risk. Here's where the whole question of prudence comes in, if I can put it this way. The fool can say things, right, because he's looked at as a fool. So, so long as he puts on a facetious front, if he takes on his persona, he can say all these things, no matter how offensive they are. Take away that persona and be serious in the world, what happens? What happened to Cordelia? What happened to Kent? In fact, there they are. Both of them have a fool in them. Both of them spoke the truth. And look what happened. Is everybody following? I don't think that's an accident. Shakespeare is showing the problem we face with being honest. You know, that, um, that there are times when it may be important that we assume a persona to speak the truth without... without making things worse and and maybe sometimes it has to be made worse i'm not i'm i'm speaking in generalizations here so but i i i don't think the the relationship between the fool and cordelia and kent and the timing of his going and his coming all those things are accidental i think they're pointed um when he when he appears he starts speaking truth um, to Lear, <laughs> and Lear says, this is about line 100, Lear says, take heed, Sarah, the whip. So he's already threatening the fool to hold his tongue or he's going to get whipped. So there we are. The threat, the thre this was true of Socrates, it was true of Christ, it was true of Thomas More. We can go on and on. Um, Truth's a dog must to kennel. He must be whipped out when the lady Brock may stand by the fire and stink. <laughs> He's referring to Lear, a pestilent gall to me. Seer, I'll teach thee a speech. Do, mark it, Nuncle. Have more than thou showest, speak less than thou knowest, lend less than thou owest, ride more than thou goest, learn more than thou trowest, set less than thou throwest, leave the drink and thy whore, and keep in a door, and thou shalt have more than two tens to a score. This is nothing, fool, then tis like the breath of an un feed lawyer you gave me nothing for it can you make no use of nothing uncle by the way i think one of the truths of the play when we when we finally get there we, it will not be 
until each of us becomes nothing, till we completely lose ourselves, that we will ever find out who we really are. We have to so completely put our, Christ said, unless you bear your cross, unless you fall to the ground, or a seed fall to the ground, or unless you die, or... Um, can you make use of nothing, uncle? Why, no, no, boy, nothing can be made out of nothing. Fool to Kent, pretty tell him, so much the rent of his land comes to it. He will not believe a fool. Because everything that he had has come to nothing by what he did. A bitter fool, dost thou know the difference, my boy, between bitter fool and a sweet one? No, lad, teach me. That Lord that counseleth thee to give away thy land, come place him here by me. Do thou for him stand. The sweet and bitter fool will presently appear. The one in motley here, that's him, the other found out there. Dost thou call me fool boy? Is everybody following his words? He really is saying, you're a fool, the two of us are. Okay, um, how can he get away with these things? Because he's a fool. What, what, does it matter that he speaks in rhyme? Almost everything he says is in rhyme. Why is that? Why is that so? Because he's a poet. <laughs> Anything else? He is a poet. Nobody else does that. But what does it do if you've got criticisms of a person and you put everything in rhyme? What will the effect of that be to the person hearing it? You guys have to turn your audio on. To... Chuck, did you have something? Oh. Yes, I was just complaining about someone turning my audio off. Um, <laughs> no, as, as, as Laurie was saying, it's... Uh, that, that was me. If you put that to rhyme, if you put that to rhyme, I won't be offended. <laughs> um, but my, my rhymes all seem to involve Nantucket, so they're not good for here. Uh, but, as Laurie said, it, it, it lightens it. It passes it off as entertainment. Yeah. 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 Isn't that right? I mean, it makes it easy for you to laugh, so it cuts against your pride. You know, if somebody can do that. Um, so, um, let's let's go on. Um, Goner will come out, and she'll meet with her father, and she'll have nothing but complaints um, about line two hundred and ten or so. Lear says, are you our daughter? Or would you make use of your good wisdom whereof I know you are fraught and put away these dispositions where of late transport you from what you rightly are? She wants him to be as she wants him to be, not as he is. And Lear's made the mistake of making that easy for her because he gave up everything. He turned over. He, outwardly, he turned his authority over to her. So in one sense, Shakespeare's asking, can we ever fully relinquish our authority to somebody without doing ourselves harm and doing whoever we gave it to harm as well because she assumes it now Lear does any here know me he can't believe what um, he's hearing because Goneril's complaining about his retinue and their misbehavior and she wants him to reduce it about line 227 she says this admiration, sir, is much the savour of your new pranks. I do beseech you to understand my purpose aright. 
as you are old and reverend, should be wise. Everything she said is cutting. There's nothing she says that isn't cutting him. Um, Here do you keep a hundred knights and squires, men so disordered, so debauched and bold, that this our court infected with their manners makes more like a a tavern or, sorry, shows like a riotous inn. Epicurism and lust make it more like a tavern or brothel than a graced palace. She clearly has a very neat home. She wants to keep her home. I'm trying to put this in modern terms. She's trying to keep her home neat. She doesn't want her father around messing things up. And she's giving him all these reasons for going away or cutting down on his powers. Um, Be then desired by her that else will take the thing she begs a little to disquantity your train and the remainders that shall still depend to be such men as may besort your age, which know themselves and you. Darkness and devils, saddle my horses, call my train together, degenerate bastard, I'll not trouble thee, yet have I left a daughter. He will leave. Um, he, he will say of her, um, it, this is about line 270 or so, it may, it may be so, my lord, hear nature, hear, Dear goddess here, these are exactly the same lines that Edmund used. Dear goddess here, suspend thy purposes if thou did intend to make this creature fruitful into her womb convey sterility. He curses her if she never has children. If she must teen, create her child of spleen that it may live and be athwart this nature torment her. Um... If she's going to have a child, I hope the child will grow up to torment her the way she tor- torments me. It's like a parent saying, um, um, I hope these things happen to you so that you'll suffer the way I've suffered. Um, he leaves and um, he will go to um, Reagan. He will go to um, Gloucester's, and it's there he will meet Reagan and Albany. Um, but first, before Act One, Scene Five, um, Kent and the Fool meet. <laughs> this is a wonderful um, exchange between the two of them. Um, Lear says about line twenty-eight: "I will forget my nature, so kind of father." Be my horses ready. He thinks of himself as being a good father, a kind father. Um, the fool says, thy asses are gone about them. So it's, um, he says, are my horses ready? The fool says, thy asses are gone about them. That is, the fools who follow you, the asses, the dumb guys are going to... The reason why the seven stars are no more than seven is a pretty reason. Asking Lear why. Lear says, because they are not eight. Yes, indeed, thou wouldst make a good fool. Any response to that answer on Lear's part? The reason why the seven stars are no more than seven is a pretty reason. Because they're not eight. Do you want to, you have a th- response? Does anybody want to respond to that? It's pretty cryptic to me. I don't get it. Yeah. It is cryptic for sure. Um... And yet, to me, it's, it's the profundity of reason. They've gone to do this, these asses, these men, are, because they can't do anything else. There's nothing else to do. 
The reason why the seven stars are no more than seven is because that's the way it is. Seven is seven. Seven is not eight. Um, I think it's wonderful because it's it's so self-evidently true, and the last thing that Lear can see is anything self-evidently true. He's so blind. Um, they leave in Act Two. Um, Edmund and Gloucester come together again, and um, he he puts on a play of sword fighting with Edgar, and when <coughs> Edgar leaves, he wounds himself, and then he continues his um, plot, his play with his father. The really important lines are in about 65 or so, and he says that what, what Edgar said was this, Thou unpossessing bastard, does thou think... So Ed, Edmund's presenting himself as fighting for his father. And so going against Edgar, his brother. And he's saying to his father that this is what Edgar said to him, to Edmund, in this fight. Thou unpossessing bastard, does thou think, if I would stand against thee, would the reposal of any trust, virtue, or worth in thee make thy words faith? No. What I should deny, as this I would, I, though thou didst produce my very character, I'd turn it all to thy suggestion, plot, and damned practice. Edgar's saying is, if you expose me on any of this, I'd just tell him it was all you. What's the advantage of doing that to his father? Well, because it's, it's, uh, it traps him, it preempts him. It's the only argument that Edgar can make, and, and now Gloucester's predisposed to, to expect that argument. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? Why is he doing it, Doc? Why is he doing it? Yeah, why is he saying this? He's already turned father and son against him. Why is he adding this? It's just gutty. It's the cunning of this man. It's just a, a step. Sorry? The cunning of this man is astonishing to me. He's so clever. He's putting words in Edgar's mouth as he's presented and created in this play that make what he's doing more believable. That his brother would say, thou unpossessing bastard, you think you can expose me? I'll just take everything you say and turn it against you. Because who's going to believe you, a bastard? So he's he's using a whole way, a whole conventional way of acting, to convince his father and make him look better and his brother worse. And if Edgar and Gloucester ever got together, Edgar would in fact say, "I didn't do any of this. This was Edmund," which is what Edmund has already said. Good. Yeah. Did everybody hear that? Yeah. Do you see how cunning, or, or another way to put this, do you see how cunning the mind can be in getting what it wants? Um, so increasingly we're watching people become more and more unnatural only in this sense. If there's an order to nature, if there is, then what they're doing is unnatural. They're doing this against their father, they're doing it against their brothers. So implicitly, there's an order in nature, and these figures 
are acting as if there weren't, as if there were no obligation to act any other way than as they wanted. Whatever, if their thirst was for power or recognition or lands, they use their powers of reason to get what they want. Um, I'm going to jump forward because we're just about out of time here. Um, 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 Cornwall arrives and hears what has happened between Edmund and Edgar and thinks that Edgar has um, defied his father and offers his support to Edmund. In Act 2, Scene 2, Kent and Oswald have both been sent to letters to Gloucester's place and Kent fights with him and when Cornwall and Reagan arrive Kent who's a man of real honor um, speaks um, in a defiant way and they give their support to Oswald and put Kent in the stocks. Um, Gloucester, this is Act 2 Scene 2 about line 130 Gloucester says, let me beseech your grace not to do so. His fault is much and the good king his master will check him for it. Your purposed low correction is such as basis and condemned wretches for pilferings and most common trespasses are punished with. The king his master needs must take it ill. He's recognizing that there are punishments that are due in respect to the position and honor a person holds. So he's asking Cornwall not to do that. Cornwall refuses. He puts him in the stock anyway. I'm going to end with these two things. It'll it'll get us it'll get us to that scene where um, Reagan and um, Albany arrive and Lear will turn to her and ask for her support and do it by by drawing a contrast between her and and um, Goneril. But when Goneril arrives, Reagan and Goneril will hug and Reagan will have nothing but good to say about her sister. And she'll even go so far as to say to Lear, go back to Goneril, don't come to me. And when Lear insists, she says, cut your retinue down. Um, um, remember when he was with Goneril, Goneril said, cut it in half. And at this point, when Reagan says, cut it even more, Lear even considers going back to Goneril because he might have more with her. So this terms of quantity, like money and power, don't leave him. Now, give all this thought, because... In the modern world, it wouldn't be royal power, it would be money. And the power that we associate with having money, that we can do things with it. That becomes the focus of power for us. But here at the end, before, before that scene with um, Reagan and Lear, Kent is in the stocks. This is Act 2, Scene 2, about line 150. Gloucester, the Duke's to blame for this, um, twill be taken ill. Um, he, he wishes he could do something for it. Gloucester says, I'll go in and appeal for you. Kent says, pray do not. I have watched and traveled hard. Sometime I shall sleep out. The rest I'll whistle. A good man's fortune may grow out at heels. Give your good fortune. He, even though he's in distress, he will suffer it. He's just saying, let be. Gloucester says, um, the Duke's to blame for this, so he's acknowledging it wrong. And then Kent's final words in the scene are these. He's in the stocks. He's going to be there overnight. He's going to suffer through the evening, the cold. He will be punished. 
Good king that must approve the common saw, thou out of heaven's benediction comest to the warm sun. You were in the heights of heaven and now you're in the heat of the sun. So what's happened to you represents a fall. You're in a worse condition now. So he's acknowledging the king has lost everything. To the warm sun, approach thou beacon to this underglobe, that by thy comfortable beams I may peruse this letter. Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. Um, um, how do, what does that mean? Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. The most prevalent thing right now are not wonders but miseries. I notice from Cordelia, who has most fortunately been informed of my obscured course, and shall find time from this enormous state <coughs> seeking to give losses their remedies. All weary and overwatched, take vantage heavy eyes not to behold this shameful lodging. Fortune, good night, smile once more, turn thy will. There's Boethius's Wheel of Fortune again. Immediately after that, on its heels, we get Edgar. So this is one of the major low points of the play to this point. The girls have turned, or one girl has turned Lear out. The next one will shortly. Here Kent, who has offered his service again, is now being punished by Cornwall, not Lear. And he has this meditation in the stocks, and then the very next scene, Act 2, Scene 3, we get this from Edgar. I heard myself proclaimed by the happy hollow of a tree, escape the hut. No port is free, no place that guard, and most unusual vigilance does not attend my taking. People are searching for him everywhere to take him captive because everybody believes he's going to kill Gloucester. Whilst I may escape, I will preserve myself and am bethought to take the basis and most poorest shape that ever penury in contempt of man brought near to beast. He's going to be reduced to a condition like that of an animal. My face all grime with filth, blanket my loins, um, elf all my hairs in knots, and with presented nakedness outface the winds and persecutions of the sky, he's going to give himself over to the elements. He's going to take our disguise. The country gives me proof and precedent of bedlam beggars who, with roaring voices, strike in their numbed and mortified bare arms, pins, wooden pricks, nails, sprigs of rosemary, and with this horrible object from low farms, poor pelting villages, sheep coats, mills, that he's, he's going to be to identify himself with the poorest of the poor. He will be a beggar out on the lands at the mercy of necessity of, of nature. Um, he has to put on a disguise. He's fleeing. He can't be found. Um, he's, going to, he's going to be one of the Tom O'Bedlam beggars. Poor Turley God, poor Tom, that's something yet. Edgar, I am, no, I am, I nothing am. Kent has put on a disguise. He's no longer Kent. Edgar puts on a disguise. He's no longer Edgar. It's only when these people do away with all worldly things that something may happen. Now, I don't want to give away anything, but this is one of the low points. The next low point will be when Reagan turns Lear out and he goes on the heat. This is the beginning of Act 3. Um, this is where we'll pick up. I'll, I'll briefly touch on the end of Act 2. But in Act 3, Lear will go to the heath. He's out in nature with Tom O'Bedlin and the cattle and the poor people. 
And he says, blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage blow, you cataracts and hurricanes spout till you have drenched our steeples, drown the cocks. He goes on, thou all shaking thunder strike flat, the thick rotundity of the world crack nature's molds, all germanes, the sources of all things in reality. It's like Plato's forms, the sources of everything that exists. All germanes spill at once that makes ingrateful man. Whatever it was that caused this ingratitude of man, do away with it. He's in nature, and he'll go on to say, Let the great gods that keep this dreadful putter or our heads find out their enemies now. Tremble, thou wretch. That is, anybody who's done anything wrong, tremble, thou wretch, that has within thee indivulged crimes, unwhipped of justice. Hide thee, thou bloody hand, thou perjured, and thou simular of virtue. Thou art incestuous. All these established offices are filled with corrupt people. Caitiff to pieces shake that under covert and convenient seeming has practiced on man's life. All the way in which people who in conventional offices have taken advantage of their offices and abused people, let them be torn apart. Close pent-up guilts, rive your concealing continents, and cry these dreadful summoners' grace. I am a man more sinned against than sinning. Now, before we get to that, because that's where we're going to go when we pick up, because that takes Lear to the heath in the center of the play. He has lost everything. He's given up everything. He's outraged at the treatment he's received from his daughters. But I want to, before we stop tonight, I just want to take a minute with those two scenes. Kent is in the stocks. Fortune, good night. Smile once more. Turn thy wheel. Edgar, I heard myself proclaimed. He's putting on a... Um, um, a disguise and then he says I'm going to put myself up with beggars striking their number striking their numbed and mortified bare arms pins wooden pricks nails sprigs of rosemary and with this horrible object from a low farms poor pelting village he goes on and on it's like the poor who live you know the poor and homeless in the Dallas Fort Worth area who live on the streets or just for a second, describe these two men. Characterize them. Kent is stoic and has uh, some faith in providence. Say the last, he's stoic what? Say it he's again. He seems, he seems to have some faith in providence. He thinks that things will turn out for the better. Because he believes in justice. He believes that justice will be the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Anybody else? Cordelia's not returned to the scene yet. She will with France at the end with an army. But at this point, the view of women is not very good. view of men is not very good. But these two men, Lear, Lear and Gloucester are being punished. So those men are undergoing a severe penance. They're, something's happening to both of them right now. But these two men, Kent and Edgar, are remarkable. Shakespeare would have known them as Stoics. That they're men capable of... I mean, re just remember in the early Christian church, there was this... Um, accommodation, compatibility between Stoicism and Christianity. 
because the Stoic believed that the most important thing he could do... Heather, by the way, this goes to your comment. It's why I responded the way I did earlier. The Stoic believed that your emotions were not good, that the most important thing was to stuff them, bury them, because they just created such havoc with the human soul. Um, And there's that aspect of Christianity. The difference is that in Christianity... Um, the, the Christian does not believe in stuffing emotions or denying them the way the Stoic did. The Christian believes like David. You dance in front of the ark. You take joy. You remember when, when, the, when the Pharisees got all over Christ for eating? He said, God. I mean, all they did was find fault everywhere. He said, what do you do in the bridegroom's presence? What did David do with the sacred bread and the altar? He ate it. There was a joy. When you're in the presence of the bridegroom, Dance, sing. In fact, I'm going to look at that. I'll see if I can find that quote where he talks about the stones crying out. You know, he said, the children in the marking place playing dirges, you you called John a, you called John a, an ascetic, you know, bad because he denied everything. You called Christ a wine bibbler because he drank. Whatever they saw, they, they could not take a joy in things. So here we've got two instances of men who are being absolutely faithful, who are having to deny themselves completely. We don't see, if there are signs of Christianity, they're bare, I think, along the lines of what um, um, Chuck said, you know, that that Kent believes in a providence, that, that he's holding on, believing that the wheel will turn, that things will get better. But meanwhile, he is not going to trouble all weary, and he says, when, when Gloucester says, I'll go in and entreat for thee, he says, pray, don't. I have watched and traveled hard. He's lived a hard life. Sometime I shall sleep out the rest, I'll whistle, and good man's fortune may grow out at heels. Give you good morrow. There's nothing but a kindness and a goodness in it. This heroic, sort of understated goodness. He meditates on Lear's fall. Um, he's got a note from Cordelia. He knows that she'll come. All weary and overwatched, take vantage, heavy eyes, not to behold this shameful lodging. Fortune, good night. Smile once more, turn thy wheel. What a wonderful, heroic acceptance of a difficult moment. And it's immediately followed by Edgar, who takes the same sort of thing. He's going to join the beggars, um, poor Tom a fool. Um, and we'll see eventually he's going to help his father recover his sight. Um, let me stop. Any, any comments about Lear up to this point? We'll, I'll take a few minutes with Act 2 just to finish the scene with Reagan and Lear, because I think it's important. But we'll start Act 3 when, when Lear goes to the heath. Here's my question to, to leave you with. Remember, remember Boethius' circle image, the still point at the center? We get it in Eliot everywhere. Remember, Boethius said, if you're on the circumference, everything's constantly motioning, whirling. You're controlled by fate because what drives you, what are, what are the foremost driving forces of human nature? If you go back to Boethius, what were they? What are the things that motivate most men and women? St. Thomas identified the same ones. Wealth. Wealth. Power. Power. Lust. 
Mm, pleasure. 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 And fame or recognition, accomplishments. Just hold on to them. wealth, power, pleasure, recognition, fame. If you look at most of the bad characters on the surface, they're driven by those four desires. And remember, Boethius' argument is so long as you're on that surface, that cir sorry, that circumference, your life is in what he called fate. You're subject to whatever goes on because that's what you give your life to. The closer you move to the center, the still point, the closer you get to God, the more you see holes, the more you see things differently. In fact, if I can put it in terms of the reading this morning, so long as you're on the circumference, you're blind. You're so preoccupied by those things that you can't see anything else. The closer you get to the center, the more you turn away from those things, the more you recover your sight and you see like God. Now, we're reaching a point in the play where almost all the major characters have moved, except the rebelling ones, have moved off that surface, the circumference. They've, given, they've lost or given up everything. Edgar and Edmund have given up everything. Lear and Gloucester have been forced, well, Lear gave it up, thinking he could hold on to it, prerogatives of it. But he and Gloucester are at a point of losing everything. So what will we call that point on the heath where all of these characters, where Lear, Gloucester, Edgar, where they meet? How do, we, how do we describe the heath symbolically? You know, often in our works we've talked about symbols of land and setting. The sea has been a major one. sea has been a major one always. It seems to me the heath here in Lear is a major image. It says more than just being a heath. So how do we look at this condition and what does it mean? How important is it for what happens to Lear and Gloucester and Edgar? and the fool. Okay, any questions or thoughts before we leave at this point? Anne, I've had you on my mind a lot since your comment about your grand, your granddaughter and you know that um, being thankful for Thanksgiving. Um, I hope everybody has a really good Thanksgiving and I just hope you know, somehow with all of our wealth and affluence that somehow live without nothing and be grateful for, so you can be more grateful for everything that we've got. Um, with nothing. And put, put, put um, all the dark stuff away and have a good, have a, have a good Thanksgiving. Say it again, Doug. You said live without nothing. You know, live, live with, with nothing. nothing. Sorry, live with nothing. Live without things. Just live with nothing. Sorry. Any questions or thoughts about Lear? I'm going to leave you with this thought because I, you know, I've got our church in our mind. This play, in in one sense, speaks to my mind so much more direct, like like Hamlet. It speaks so directly to the condition of our modern world, the way the modern mind looks at the world and what it does with it than maybe any other play, um, and I think Shakespeare knew that. But, okay, no thoughts or 
Okay, you all, you all have a good. We won't meet next week. We'll meet in two weeks. That gives you more than enough time to finish the book and to do the quiz. I'm going to send you. <laughs> have a good thanks. Have a good Thanksgiving, you guys. Happy Thanksgiving. To thank you, Bob. Thank you, all of you. Thank you, Connie. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thanks.